If you want to be at the tip of the spear of sports performance, the answer is simple. Simply Faster is your insider's edge to maximize results with the highest quality premier sports equipment in the business. Visit Simply Faster and level up. Welcome, everyone, to the Companions of the Compendium podcast. Today, I have the massive pleasure of introducing to you, if you haven't already met this person or heard of this person, I don't know where you've been, maybe sleeping under a rock or locked down in your basement, but I've got Coach Kurt Hines with us today. If that name rings a bell, then you understand many of the the passionate viral videos and inspirational quotes and talks and conversations that he's had. And for me personally, in many ways, he was like my, my digital mentor to get through a lot of this coronavirus and pandemic and uh, an absolute fountain of knowledge and, and perspective and context. So I am so excited to have you, Kurt. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Ryan, thank you for having me. I, after an introduction like that, I don't think I should say anything because it's only going to go down from here. <laughs> I'm going to lose some followers now. No, it's it's a blessing to be connected, man. I, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, this is. Um, I know we kind of touched base about a couple months ago or whatever, and we were getting through our season. So, I mean, you being able to jump on and for a little peek behind the curtain with a pretty short notice um, to do this is just uh, again kind of speaks to your you know great great thoughts and kindness and and value. So, I very much appreciate you. So talking uh, to you and a lot of people know you and have, have connected with you and you have a massive following on social media. But for those of us that haven't had a lot of time to interact with you, tell them a little bit, educate them a little bit about your story and the mentors in your life that have brought you to this point. Yeah, it's my, my story is uh, it, it's sometimes underwhelming. You know, I was, I was born and raised in Barrington, Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of three kids, uh, middle child. And, and I definitely fulfilled that middle child uh, stigma, if you will, getting into trouble in my youth and getting arrested a bunch of times. But uh, that, that all leads to, to truly my passion of, of uh, just the, the fact that we can, if we choose to, all grow and change and evolve. Um, married my best friend when I was 22 years old. We met in college. And we're actually celebrating our 27th wedding anniversary. Uh, we're heading out tomorrow to Palm Springs. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I teach elementary school. I've taught for 26 years now. I've taught always first through fourth grade. And uh, just wrapped up my 23rd year of coaching high school football. Uh, great majority of those were on the East Coast in New Hampshire where we, we started out. And then I moved out here to San Diego six years ago. Um, my wife and I had our first uh, grandson. So now we're, we're out here with all four of our kids who are all 23 through 30. And we have two grandsons. So that, that's the Reader's Digest abridged version of, uh, of where I am. You know, your question as far as you know, who's helped me along the way, I mean, I, I feel like we could do hours on that. You know, it's just, I've, I've been blessed to have great teachers, great coaches and parents and mentors through my entire life. Um, but really one that I, I often talk about that really changed the trajectory of my life was my seventh grade math teacher. And I, I have never been a mathematician by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, he was a teacher that would sit on the corner of his desk at the beginning of every class and just talk to us about life. You know, he'd call you out and say, hey, Ryan, tell me about you know, your, your last track meet or Kurt, tell me about football or whatever it was. And I don't even know if he knows the impact he had, but I remember sitting there as a seventh grader just thinking, dang, like this guy cares. Like, like he's not talking to me because I'm going to be one of his 
scholar math students going to compete in some, you know, math competition or whatever. Uh, but that really led me to want to become a teacher um, in seventh grade and, and coaching kind of happened. Uh, I was in college and one of my professors, they were looking for a volunteer for a special needs flag football team. So, so I roped one of my teammates into it. He and I did it. And that was my first experience ever coaching and just seeing the, the eyes light up in this young girl with Down syndrome where I was like, dang, like, I want to do that. Like, I want to be able to make that impact, not just in the classroom, but on the field. So do you feel like that early experience also led you to choose elementary school in a way to, to have that kind of the raw material, the younger kids? Do you feel like that informed your decisions later on what direction you wanted to go with the educational part of your job? Great question. Part of that actually, I think was my, one of my high school football coaches owned a daycare center and it just happened to be 200 yard walk from my house. So growing up, I started working there and th there was a moment, gosh, I haven't talked to even thought about this in years. There was a moment where I was, gosh, sophomore in high school. And one of the, I say older now, she's, she's probably, she probably was only 30 at the time, but uh, older women, older than I was working there. There was a young boy that was giving her a hard time. And just before we all had at a daycare center, just before we took them all outside for recess, I remember her looking at him and reprimanding him saying, you know what, you're going to stay inside and read. And I thought, wait, wait a minute. Like that's a punishment. Like why, why are we having that stigma? Reading is a bad thing. Like I understand this child, you know, had to be disciplined or whatever, but that moment or those moments working in a daycare center, Kind of made me fall in love with working with younger children and still to this day i feel like i i have the best of both worlds because in fourth grade and younger there are no hormones you're you're just dealing with pure joy of children and you can get them excited about anything you know right. in high high school football it's uh it's a different beast but but i feel like my approach is almost identical in that i think 99% of the successes I've had in the classroom with my students or on the football field have come down to relationships, you know, building relationships. If, if my student knows that I love them and, and I want to pour into them, regardless of whether or not they're a good reader or mathematician or speller, it's the same for my football players that they realize kids are smart. They, they can, they can see through the, the BS, if you will, they can see if a teacher or coach is, is only acting a certain way because of a parent or administrators around. But when someone knows you truly care about them because of who they are, that changes everything. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting. Um, you know, your experience is very unique. I mean, I, in our area, we have obviously high school teachers that are high school coaches and, and sometimes the middle school coaches or middle school teachers will help coach as well, but it's such a unique experience to have that young, young group of kids that you're working with and you're molding and you're teaching and, and it's gotta be, I think it informs a lot of your process, you know, in terms of like that the young men you work with on the football field were once those kids, right? Yes. Do you feel like that informs your whole mission and your why? Absolutely. You know, it's funny too, and I think it makes me, and when I, I'm gonna preface this by saying, when it makes me a better coach, I don't mean better than anyone else, but what makes me a better coach than I think I would have been was, my day-to-day -day job working with children, some of them have IEPs or 504s and they're the greatest kids. It's just, they need a little bit more or a lot sometimes direction and focus and patience. I see a lot of coaches sometimes who want to throw up their hands at a young man or a young woman on the football field 
and say they don't care, they're lazy, they're not studying their plays. When that could be the farthest thing, farthest thing from the from the truth. And I tell our coaches very often we don't know if this young man has an IEP or a 504 or has a learning disability or a challenge. And if we just dismiss it as they're lazy or when we're, when I'm addressing the team and I'm locked in and eyes are all on me and someone's kind of looking around at butterflies, they could be being disrespectful or it could be that they just have attention challenges and that they need that. So, so I think the marriage of both has really helped me to become both a better teacher and coach than possibly I would have been. Yeah. And I think that's very true. And it's, it's interesting because I, was unaware of the elementary side of, of your career, you know? And so that really, you know, looking back now with a little bit of hindsight on that, it really does inform me on kind of your, your uh, presentation and your, your, your job and how you, how you want to lead these men and, and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I think about a lot when it kind of comes to that idea of, and it really has helped. I mean, obviously, I'm sure, Kurt, you went through this, too. When you had your own children, you probably went through a metamorphosis, you know. Um, yeah, for sure. And so for me, I, I went through that as well. But recently, like, you know, I hate to Joe Rogan is one of these guys I listen to occasionally. And one of the things that he had said, another fellow bald man like us, who um, talks about the idea of when he had kids, he realized that these adults that he ran into that maybe frustrated him previously in life, he's like, oh, wait they all started out as this innocent baby that was extremely vulnerable, you know, yes. and they're an accumulation of these life experiences. And so it's really cool, man. And um, I find that to be really powerful. It's awesome. And, and, and I also feel, you know, and I try to share with my coaches as, as often as I can, that young man that's giving you a hard time, don't take it personally. They, they may be having a hard time and that's their only way to, to demonstrate this or to kind of get their anger out. And I'm not saying we give a pass to people and just let them get mouthy or talk back or show up late. But uh, I, I had a new coach on my staff this year, a great young coach, love him. He's going to continue with us. But uh, there were two separate instances, two different young men. One came late and he started yelling at him right away. Hey, why are you late? And I was like, whoa, no, no, no. Pulled the coach aside. I'm like, that's a great question. One-on-one face-to-face. I said, you don't know if he's late because he just didn't care. He slept in or being lazy or he may have just broken up with his girlfriend or had seen his parents get into a huge fight. I said, let's not jump at that. And then we had another young man who, uh, different practice, there was a fight on our field between two teammates. And uh, he went and ran over to break it up. And I was like, we need that. Like, let him go, let him go. And he looked at me, I said, just give him 30 seconds. So we gave him 30 seconds just to fight. And, I thought, and just calmly, I said, I'll talk to you guys both after. Let's keep going with practice. And it was cool for me to pull that coach aside and say, hey, there's two players that were fighting. Here's a background story about this player. Here's the background story about this player. And really pour into the coach and say, we, we can't treat every player the same because they're all different. They all come from different backgrounds. The one player that you were about to attack and get really mad at, parents just split. And he's living with the parent he didn't want to live with. So yes, he's got a lot of anger. He's got a lot of frustration. And no, we're not going to let him just fly off the handle and, and fight everyone. But sometimes you need to let that anger out you know, so it, it does. It, I think for me, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to teach and coach in two different worlds and realize that they align so well with each other often. Yeah, there's that bridge in between and you're seeing it in both ends. And it's it's a, it's a very unique opportunity that you have and really allows you to to put things together for young people in a very different way than than many others. And I wish that, you know, just in a general sense, like, you know, some elementary schools and, and high schools would 
figure out a way to work that out, you know, so that more, you know, young men and women can coach or teach at different levels and be able to have value in the community in a much broader sense, like what yeah. you're doing, you know? So, uh, and the fight thing is interesting, right? Cause you know, guys and girls, you know, tend to handle some of that stuff differently. I remember like back in the day, like a lot of times if there was a fight in the locker room or a fight on the weekend, usually it was handled. You know, yes. it was instead of like circling each other, like these two prize fighters that never get to meet in the ring, you get to square it away, yes. you know, and not that we want to promote fighting, but, you know, maybe, hey, in a contact sport, you can out hustle the person, you can beat them to the position, you can make a big play on them. You know, there's all these ways that you can kind of settle those things. And I think that that's the value of sport too, that it provides other avenues to solve some of those problems that normally in regular society, we can't. Yeah. And, and for us at Coronado, and I, I love where I'm blessed to coach, but you know, my, my wife and I moved out here six years ago from New Hampshire. We live on the other side of the bridge. We don't, we can't afford to live on Coronado Island. Um, but we, I tell our players all the time, every single team we play thinks you're a bunch of rich, uh, rich white kids that are handed everything. And we have some diversity, not a ton. We have the North Island, so we have the Naval base. But the fact is there is a lot of money on the island. And not all the kids come from money. And some of them come from million-dollar homes with more cars than they have drivers. But there's still abuse, neglect, depression, anxiety, all these things that we all go through in life to some degree or our loved ones do. It still happens there. But there is this stigma of, hey, you're in Coronado. Life's easy. And most of the teams we play over the bridge are inner city or closer to. And that's their ticket out. So part of my struggle as a coach at Coronado is to – get us pissed off a little bit and to have a chip on our shoulder and to play that. And then afterwards at the end of practice, pull them all aside and say, that's one of the great things about football is you can get out all the aggression and anger and violence and do it in a way that you're not going to get yourself in trouble and do it in a way you're not going to get arrested. You know? Absolutely. So building off of that, you know, and talking about your location and, and where you're at, how has that changed your why or how, what are the unique opportunities about your why and in your mission that you now have that's different than when you were on the East Coast? Because I imagine, you know, Northeast versus Southern California, obviously the geography is wildly different. But talk about how culturally the opportunities and challenges of your current location versus the other places you've been and, and the solutions you've worked through to, to deal with those uh, issues and opportunities. Yeah. So, so my first the why hasn't changed. And I shared that with the team when I came out here. My why for coaching has always been to empower people. I, I love it. J just like you, I'm sure you love, well, you've, you've written a very successful book. So definitely like you and you're, you're probably more knowledgeable in your field than I am in mine. But I, I love the X's and the O's. I love the game planning. I love the practice. I love the weight room. But the thing I love most is knowing I'm making a difference in someone's life. To, to, to take someone, whether they're a stud when they come to me or can barely put their helmet on straight, anything in between, where they come from a great family or not to, to use the platform we have as coaches to yes, win on the field or track, but more importantly to help them win in life. That's my why. So that hasn't changed geographically, geographically what's changed. Uh, we were actually in practice. We, we had a very shortened abridged season this year with COVID, but just the first week of practice or so, two of my coaches, one who's been an assistant at our school for 25 years now, one who is a former Navy SEAL and now he trains Navy SEALs. Uh, they were talking, they looked at me and they said, coach, you have the toughest coaching job in the country. 
And I, I looked at them, we're in San Diego. So I'm like, yeah, this sucks, right? And they said, no, they said, no really, no. What, what they said made total sense, but, but I don't think I had the toughest job by any stretch of the imagination. But we have a naval base. And what's, what's been a challenge and a blessing, but a challenge with that is we have families coming and going all the time. So two years ago, our starting quarterback moved in through the Navy. Thank you very much, U.S. Navy. He was our starting quarterback in safety. And the very same year, before he even finished his junior year, father got transferred somewhere else. So really what, what that's helped me to do is grow as far as how I define and look at culture. Now, I, I know culture has never been, hey, slap a cool saying on a T-shirt or a wall in the weight room or locker room. It's so much more than that. But now more than ever, I've realized that it's a living, breathing organism because that revolving door for us in the military is constantly bringing in and taking out families left and right. You know, we had two freshmen start for our varsity this year. One was a, our quarterback and one was a wide receiver, the stud, but both are studs. But the wide receiver, his father just a month ago retired from the Navy. So they're moving up north to, uh, to a different school. So it's, it's constantly looking at, um, you know, how, how I'm pouring into the young men and young women in our program and how I can continue to help them to pour into each other more than ever. So when a new family moves into town, it's not just me trying to explain who we are as a program, but it's collectively our whole program saying, hey, this is who we are. Whereas back in New Hampshire, you had people move every so often, but 99% of the time, if you had a young man or a young woman in your program, they were there for the four years. Yeah, and that's one of the things that reason why I asked that question is because I mean, you guys are like, right there. And I mean, in order for them to get to the Navy base, they got to come all the way up that slim strip of beach, all yeah. the way up to your island, and then to this massive for those of us who are not in the United States. I mean, San Diego is, you know, one of the biggest monstrous military installations we've got. Uh, in the country and you're right on top of it so like all these it's so funny I think about like all these sci-fi movies and all this different kind of stuff and I'm like oh that that was taking place right there on that yes. military base you know so the military situation you know I don't want to say it's a curse it, it's a blessing <clears throat> and it has it forces you to evolve because you do get a tease it's like oh you get this really great athlete and they come in and you and you've got this fantastic athlete but don't count on them ever being right. there for four years. So you would have not only, I mean, first of all, Kurt, four years is a really short time to us and to those yeah. kids, it seems like forever. So when you're talking about pouring into them and building them up and, and, and making sure that this, this uh, you know, culture isn't on autopilot, that you're an Correct. active participant being the tip of the spear in that culture, what do you do to develop servant leaders in your program? How do you build that? What are things that you do? What are you looking for? Yeah, I, the, the easiest answer, the one I think the most impactful in my opinion is relationships. As cliche and as, as simple as it sounds, I, I think you know the best way to create a leader is to pour into that individual and to help them empower them to see who they are and what they've got in, within themselves. And then to really watch them in the weight room. I love the off season because let, like most of us, you know, the season, our practices during the season, we have it down to the minute. We've got eight minutes to stretch. We've got 12 minutes for a PAT. We got 20 minutes into here, you know, whatever it is during the weight room, 
the offseason, I can pull a player or two or three aside and say, hey, I'm going to work out with you guys today. And that, that really helps me find out what makes them tick. There are certain players where I fit in under them for the squat. I'm slapping their chest and I'm loud and I'm yelling and music's loud and that gets them going. We just had a young man graduate this past year. He's going to graduate in a um, few weeks. Started left tackle for us the past two years. He's, he would have shut down. He's a very cerebral player, great, great young man. But if I were to slap his chest, a slow little tear would have fell down. He would have re-racked the weights. He said, coach, don't hit me. You know, don't hit me. It hurts. You know? right. and, and to get to know them in the weight room uh, is it, huge. As far as the players that come and go, um, one of the things I, I tell their families when they come in, I tell them individually, and I make sure I follow up with when they do move is that I don't want to be their coach for one year or four years. I want to be able to, if they're willing, be that coach for a lifetime. Um, and, you know, we had one, the young man I talked about, our quarterback that moved in and moved out the very, right after the season, um, still keep in touch with him now. And he's playing college baseball now. And I, and I love that he knows that I wasn't there using him as a pawn to help us do well for one season, but want to be there in any way, shape or form that he wants. Um, so it comes down to relationships. The, the other thing I do that I can't wait to get back to because COVID has kind of thrown a wrench in this right. is we do leadership council meetings. And originally it was going to be bi-weekly meetings with seniors. And then before I even kicked it off, I thought, wait a minute, why am I just opening up this up to seniors? Um, whether we're in Coronado or not, why not open it up to every single player? So when we started doing it, we would have 17 or so kids that would come into my office and we would talk and sometimes I would have an agenda. Sometimes we would just eat food and just talk and get to know each other. Um, but I thought, man, if, if this freshman, for example, comes in and he doesn't see himself as, as a leader, none of his teammates do, two thoughts came to mind. He might develop into that leader a year or two or three later, or let's say he never does, but he's still being poured into. He's still hearing other people speak. And he's, he's probably in most cases, in most high schools, sitting at the same table with upperclassmen that he wouldn't other in other situations would never sit at the same table with and, and share these conversations with. Yeah. And I feel that's really important to, to have stair steps to becoming a leader through process, a leader through experience and a leader through learning vicariously. Right. So like you have to have all of that. So like in my program, there have been years where I didn't have captains. Because it was like, nobody is the material. It's just because you're a senior and you may be the best kid on my team in performance, you exactly. don't have the skill sets to do that. Now, what I've done since then is just like what you talked about is we try to create opportunities because that that's, a, in my opinion, not having a captain is a problem, not because I can't do my job as a leader, but there's so many things that's important for us to develop these people into young leaders that we need to have somebody be able to have that ability and process because not only is it important to your program, but it's important to those kids yes. that they have that skill set, right? And so we do like a big sister, little sister program. So like basically every kid that's a returning athlete has a chance to mentor an individual athlete on my team. And there's all sorts of different things and expectations that we have for that. You know, a lot of our seniors will take on the role of designing and setting up our kind of cultural activities. But I also make sure that I'm heavily involved in that so that A, they're appropriate, B, they're effective, but I want them to make those critical decisions within a framework. 
and it's awesome, man. And, and one of the things that I've been hoping to do, and again, because of coronavirus was, you know, we were going to kind of have like a, like a little bit of a leadership book club, you know, where we would get together maybe once a month throughout the entire year between my two programs that I'm the head coach of just to kind of deal with those very things that you were discussing, you know, and it, that's, that's an awesome, awesome thing. And it, it helps those kids see themselves in that way. And, and hopefully eventually, you know, like, I don't say fake it till you make it, but if this is what you want to be, you know, you've got to start somewhere and there's got to be um, stair steps. So it doesn't seem insurmountable for you to become right. that leader. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny, right? When you said the fake it till you make it, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm, I'm sure I read this or heard this somewhere else, but, or learn it till you earn it, you know? Yeah. I, I do believe certain individuals, you and I, others kind of born innate person, people, people, persons, you know, they want to pour into people, but, but leadership is something you know, the, the leader I am today and I, and I'm proud of who I am, but I also know that I've got a long way to go. I look back at my first year as a head coach in New Hampshire, and that was one of my greatest years ever as a head coach. And it was the most painful year ever as a, as a head coach. We get our teeth kicked in every week. We lost every single game. I was being questioned by everyone and their grandmother. Um, but it really made me reflect on why am I doing this? Why do I want to be a head coach? And, and I always say this, not that being an assistant is easy, by any stretch of the imagination. You still have to know your craft. You still have to pour into young, young men and young women. There's a lot to do, but it's a lot easier, in my opinion, than being a head coach. So it really solidified my why. Like, why do I want to be a head coach? And for me, it all came down to, I love the word empower. I want to be able to empower people. And you can do that as an assistant. So I kept on going back. Why do I want to be a head coach? And it came back to the word power. I want to have the power to hire the men and women beside me because you've probably seen this too. There are a lot of people with all due respect that have played or ran or raced or thrown at the highest level professionally that are horrible coaches. They don't have the patience. They don't have the temperament. They don't, they were a freak of athletes, great, very great athletes, but doesn't make them a great coach necessarily. And as a head coach, I love the fact that I can hire men and women that are people first oriented. They, they want to pour into people because you can teach them other things. I want them to have a base knowledge, of course. Um, and the better the knowledge, the, the, the greater. But it's so much more than just X's and O's or, or the mechanics of a lift or a throw or running or coming out of your blocks or whatever it is. That if they love people, I can help them to become a great coach. But if they yeah, don't I, love their sport, it's hard. Yeah, and I, lo- and I love that too. <clears throat> and, and I've... Like we had a young man, but he's not a young man, but he's, he's a colleague of mine. And he, um, you know, I tried to get him to be a, a coach in a particular discipline, you know, the pole vault, which is a hard discipline to teach, hard to learn as a coach, especially if you've not done the event. So a couple of years ago, I asked him to be a part of it. And he was like, not at this moment, I'm doing, you know, speech and debate and all this kind of stuff. But I'm like, well, keep this in mind that this door is going to be open for you whenever you decide to join us because he is a fantastic teacher, relationship builder, and the kids love him, you know, and he's got a unique style and message that's different than mine, but his intent and what he wants to accomplish in his daily life as an educator is right in line with me. And in some ways he inspires me 
to be even better in how I handle my day-to-day work. Right. And so like, you're exactly right, man. That is, that's such an important point that like, if you guys are listening in the audience and thinking about, Oh, I would like to do this, but I'd never have done this before, or I want to hire this person, but they don't have the experience there. You're going to learn. But if you like working with kids and you believe in being a, how can I say this? Um, a net positive for their life and moving them forward. That's all you need. All the other technical expertise and coaching wisdom will come because you're already a good educator and your heart is in the right place. Yeah. And then something you just said there, Ryan, I absolutely love and tells me so much about you personally as a coach was your, and I wish your viewers could, or your listeners could see this also because you're <laughs> really good. Cause I, your face just lit up when you talked when you spoke about another coach and you said, and I'm paraphrasing, they love him. He's a great guy. And he shares a diff- little bit different than I am. And I think I love that because that tells me you're in the right, obviously for the right reasons, because how many coaches are intimidated about hiring other coaches that they're not going to be the favorite or they're not going to be liked as much or man, I realize my delivery is perfect. Truly for some people, other people I, I annoy other people. I, I just can't connect with you and I could share the exact same message or the coach you're speaking of or some other man or woman that we might say the exact same thing, but because our delivery or our persona or our energy is just a little different. It's going to bless someone else in a different way. Why wouldn't we want to have coaches on our staff that are, you know, people, people, you know, just people that light people up. I love that. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's the thing is like, we are um, living in a world that's increasingly diverse, religiously, politically, um, you know, socially, all this kind of stuff. And so if you are so ignorant to think in an absolutist way that this is how this gets done. And this is the only way that it gets done. You're going to have a career that's not going to be as fulfilling as it should be. And I remember, um, you know, when we, when you agreed a while ago to kind of talk to me about some stuff, one of the things that you had mentioned is you learned a lot from coaches, what not to do and how not to do things. So without naming names, what are some examples that were really educational to you to go, uh, maybe somebody might not be aware that this isn't really the right way to do it or whatever, but man, oh man, this is something that I learned either vicariously or by a mistake, you know, yeah. that you may personally talk to the audience about that. That That's another great question. I, I truly believe we, we learn something from every person. If we choose to, we, we can learn something about every person we meet and it's going to be something we want to emulate or something we'd ever, never want to be like. One, one of the things and I'll say this gentleman's name, uh, cause I'm going to, I'm going to compliment sandwich this. Uh, Mike Bellavo, Mike Bellavo, and I don't know if he'll listen to this or not, but he was the he was the gentleman who gave me my first coaching opportunity ever back in New Hampshire. And several things I learned about him right away was he loved people, and he loved football, and in that order. So I, I was blessed to learn from a, from a man that did it right, in my opinion. <clears throat> um, learned a lot of great things from him about football. One thing that he did that I was like, "Ooh, I'm not going to do that." Was and it's, it's not even a, a, a negative, it's just, it's not my style. On game day at Sohegan, where I coached the first seven years, we looked like a division one college football team. We had 15, 17 coaches in the sideline, everyone wearing their coaching cage jacket or whatever. Well, more than half those coaches only came to practice once or twice a week, you know? And a lot of them were great men. Some of them just wanted to wear the coach's jacket on a Friday night. So they could be like, hey, I'd come on Tuesday. So one of the things I learned was I don't want coaches on my staff that can't be fully committed. 
but I do want to preface or not preface, but but share also fully committed without sacrificing their family. So I always tell our coaches, like if you have a son or a daughter or a spouse that has some big thing coming on, a school play, uh, whatever it is, be there for that. Like, like I will never give you a hard time or question you missing practice if it's a, it's a family thing. Um, that being said, I don't think I've ever uh, had a coach that misses a game, you know? So you want to make sure that you have coaches that are just as committed to the process as they are to the product. Um, I, another name I won't mention, of course, was I did coach with a, a I'll be very careful about this, uh, an individual that uh, 100% in the worst of ways used the players to pad their resume and use them as pawns. And it was the most disgusting, blatantly obvious thing that every other coach in the staff saw, every player saw, family saw. Um, and it wasn't an aha moment like, oh, I won't do that because I already knew my heart was different from that. But it was one of those things that I experienced firsthand and it was gut-wrenching. It, it was horrible to see. And it was allowed for the longest time because this individual produced winning teams. And I thought, man, that's, that's not what it's about for me. It's, it's not what it's about. So I, I think a suggestion I would have for any teacher or coach with it, you know, often people would ask me, hey, what, what advice would you give to a new coach? And I always thought about that. I'm like, man, it's not just new coaches. Because sometimes you have coaches who have coached under a jack wagon for 30 years who have thought it's completely fine to yell at and scream at and berate players. I yell and scream all the time. I get very emotional in the weight room, in the locker room, in, in the, on the field. But it's never derogatory. It's never putting someone down. And I tell our coaches, if, if you do have to get on a player during practice, do it. Get on them. We have no swearing policy, but get, get on them. But if you get on one player during practice, don't you dare let that player leave that field before you put your arm around them and say, hey, listen, here's why in a very calm setting, let them know. If you get on 10 players, then you're going to be there for a while after practice. You better connect with all 10 of those, 10 of those players. Um, but I do. I think if we, if we approach our profession as we're doing what we expect our athletes to do, and that's always to learn and evolve, then we have to be looking for those opportunities to learn and evolve also. Yeah, and it's such a fine line that we have to walk as coaches. I was thinking about this um, recently. We we had a good state championship. We finished second. Nice. And yeah, it was cool, man. It was really cool. And but you know, I always think about like that movie Varsity Blues, right? Where you got Comer. I got thirteen <laughs> district titles. You know, <laughs> and the the stuff like that is the end result of numerous things that are happening and a lot of that could be darkness to get to that point or a lot of that can be light and your presentation your belief your why your mission if it's clear and the kids understand they won't get that confused but if they do get that confused then that's a recognition that you need to do something with that relationship or the group of kids to make that understood that, yes, I demand excellence. I want us to be great. I want us to be the most competitive team top to bottom in 19 events in high school track and field. But at the same time, that comes from each individual of you doing your part too. We can yeah. make you good. You decide you're great. 
and we will help you along the way and we will try to find the things where you can be the greatest at and then the outcome will be a good result but i'm not trying to grub points or or do any of that kind of stuff and and you know even the best coaches with the most clear mission sometimes that can get confused and it's one of those things where i think coaches need to be aware of this which is and i know you're aware of this because you've done this a number of times that we have to the culture is there it's never on autopilot but you have to reteach all these kids that this is really who i am this is what yes. i want from you and it's a constant chain of re-educating all these people as they enter in to your program. Now, a big part of who you are is your faith. So how does your religion and God and faith play a role in where you are now as a leader? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, one of the favorite quotes I've ever read, it's not my own, uh, is something to the effect of always preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. And what I love about that is I think, you know, there are too many of us that know religious leaders in whatever denomination, it can happen at all, um, that get caught in some scandal or do something horrific to a child or someone else, you know. Um, and I, I think our words are powerful. I think our words have, uh, can, can breed life and give life to people. At the same time, our actions far outweigh the words we say. Um, I, there are too many private Christian, Catholic, religious schools out there, all levels, collegiate through high school and, and lower, that have that word Christian or whatever it is on their jersey or uniform, but behind closed doors or practices, you're hearing nothing of the sort. Right. Um, and, and you don't want to be preachy with people. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough where I teach at a school I love. It's a private Christian school. I coach at a public high school about 25 minutes away. Um, and I share my faith all the time. Uh, and, and I always, whenever I meet with a parent or a player individually in my coach's office, often I will ask them, you know, do, do you believe in God? And whenever they say yes, I'll ask them, I say, you know, this might cost me my job someday, but do you mind if we pray? And nine out of 10 times, they'll say yes. Every so often when I ask someone if they believe in God, they'll say no. And I'll say, all right, well, don't worry about it. And I'll continue the conversation. Every single time that someone has said no, and I've continued the conversation, they've stopped me and said, well, wait a minute, what if I said yes? And then I say, well, I would have asked if you wanted to pray. And several times they'll say, well, yeah, go ahead if you want to. And, and I love that. I, uh, I actually had a, an incident, I'll never forget, years ago back in New Hampshire, one of our players got injured during a game. So he, his father, and I were walking off the field. And the young man said, well, coach, what do I do now? I said, well, go home and ice, you know, use his knee. Ice your knee, you'll see Eric, our trainer, in the morning. Um, and uh, I said something like, I'll, I'll pray for you. And we're walking off the field and I keep walking and the two of them just stop in their tracks. And the father looks at me and he was not amused. He goes, we're atheists. And me being a complete bonehead like I am, I'm like, well, I'll pray for you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he, uh, he did not think it was funny at the time. And I kept checking my email all weekend for, you know, something, yeah. Um, Something from our, our administration or our AD or whatever never happened. Yeah. What did, what did happen was about a year and a half after his son graduated, his father sent me this war and peace length email talking about how he and his wife went through a divorce. He's felt broken. And he went through all this really personal stuff. And towards the end of the email, 
He said, what church do you go to? I'd love to join you sometime. Wow. And I was like, dang it. He ended up going and uh, ended up getting baptized. A, a, I think it was a few months later and stuff. Um, and the reason I share that is you know, people are watching us all the time. And I, th- I think, I don't think the fact that I have a testimony, the fact that Jesus Christ is my everything makes me better than absolutely no one. Absolutely no one. I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. And I'm not saying that passively, like, oh, I'm a sinner too. I'm messed up. Like, I love my life. I love who I am. But, but I, I need a savior just as much as anyone else and, and more than a lot of people, I'm sure. But at the same time, I think as coaches, as teachers, people are watching us all the time. Just like we tell our athletes. People are watching you. Whether you realize it or not, people are watching you. And as Christians, I think more and more people are watching us. And they're watching and waiting for us to fail, to right. slip up, and to not be perfect. Realizing that the great majority of us put, up, put up it out there to the world that we're the farthest thing from perfect. Um, but that excites me. I, th- I think we can live timidly. I realize I can get off all social media, never do another little selfie video and have a lot less people criticize me and critique right. me and, and put me down. But that's not what I feel called to do. You know, and if I, I, I just shared this earlier, I, I was doing a, a different podcast and uh, someone had asked a question about being criticized on social media. And I'm like, no matter what we do, I, I said, I, I think that's what the devil wants. I think the devil wants us to be criticized once, to have us get all our, our feathers all ruffled or whatever, and just get off and stop sharing and to be quiet and be silenced. But man, if, if we, I'm not proud of this either. I used to, I'm, I'm past this Ryan, but I used to do a video and then think to myself, and I hate them admitting this. I would think to myself before I posted it, how many likes will this get? Will this, will this, will this be popular? And I hate that I'm sharing that. I am not proud of that. I, I've now matured enough a little bit where I, I truly feel, you know what? If God put this on my heart to share this video, whether it's something about the weight room or my faith or anything in between, if it connects with one person, if one person can breathe a little bit deeper that day or a little bit calmer, or if I share something that helps a coach say, you know what? Yeah, winning's important. Yes, I hate losing, but it's not the main thing. If I can help one coach, that may help. It's like the ripple effect. Thousands of athletes that I'll never meet. You know, so for, for me, sharing my faith is, uh, is, is it's who I am. It's, it's a part of who I am. So I feel like if I'm not sharing my faith, I'm, I'm not sharing all of who I am. Yeah, and, and I tell my kids all the time and, and being a Christian as well, you know, and, and I'm in a public high school, uh, you know, and, and our school is the, and I know people here at St. Louis, Missouri, they're like, yeah, okay, a lot of diversity, but we have the most diverse school in the state of Missouri. It, it is like the United Nations it. and it is wild, man. And in a good way. Um, but because of those differing perspectives and diversity, you know, it, it's harder to create that collective culture. And that's been a challenge. And so one of the things that I'm proud of is we've been able to at least do it within the programs that, you know, I've participated in and, and we're, we're in a good direction, but we always have to recycle and relearn and do all those things I mentioned. But one of the things I say, I said, look, I'm a man of faith. You know, I believe in God and I believe that challenges and difficulties that come into your life, those demons, you should be thankful for because they test you. And that test is one of the most important things because those are the most important lessons. When somebody comes into your life and they're absolutely terrible and difficult and challenging and, and not the right person for whether, you know, they're on your team or they're a colleague or, or whatever, 
your ability to figure out how to handle that, to deal with that, and to do it with respect and confidence is a blessing. It's yes. a challenge and it's frustrating, but it's a blessing. And like you, Kurt, I, I'm not anywhere near the presence on social media that you are, but there's a gentleman who's kind of, uh, he's also involved in track and field and he's very popular. And there was a moment last year where I was like, cause we didn't have our season. We didn't have any sports, everything was shut down. And I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. And I'm like, you know, I want to influence people. And I feel like I have a strong message and I have strong ideas. And this person seems like they're getting a lot more feedback and action on social media. And then not even 30 seconds later, I go, what the hell am I thinking here? Like, this right. is not the, that's not the thing. All I need to do is continue to keep doing what I'm doing with the purpose of what I'm trying to do, which is educate people in my sport. So like you said, to help all of the hundreds, potentially, maybe yeah. thousands of people that they're going to run across as an educator and as a coach. And if I can move the needle in one of those ways for one person, just like you said, that's, that's a, that's a blessing and a gift and, and it's, and it's exciting, you yeah. know, in and of itself too. It's fun, you know, to think yeah, that. And, and I think, you know, you, we're probably the same in that a lot of your family or friends are not educators or coaches. Correct. Because, because of that, a lot of my, <laughs> the great majority of people I am friends with and family members make more money than I do. But I believe to my core, I'm one of the wealthiest people I've ever, I, I know because it defends, it goes back to how you define success. And I think that's part of culture too, is I need to share with our teams what I define as success. Everyone academically eligible. People, not, me not getting emails from teachers saying you were not respectful in class. People come up to me in the, in the community saying, hey, I don't know who it was, but someone wearing a football jersey helped me load my truck you know, with groceries or whatever it is. You know, it's, when, I, when I speak at places often, I will often say, and I realize I'm trying to bait people sometimes saying this, but I will say there's not a greater coach out there than me. And you can see people kind of fold their arms and get all defensive, like, what do you know? And, and, I, and I repeat it and say, I, I didn't say I'm greater than anyone, but there's not a greater coach than me. And it goes back to how I define success. If I define it by salary, there's a lot greater coaches than me. My championship rings, 100% a lot greater. But if I define my success as impacting other people, how do you measure that? You know, if Coach Banta, am I, am I pronouncing that correct? Correct. Yeah, you got it. If Coach Banta blesses and empowers 99 people over your coaching career, and I'm, I'm, I know it's far more than that, but let's just say 99, and I bless 98. Are you a greater coach than me? No, in my, in my opinion, in God's eyes, we were his hands and feet. We, we, we made the light, the, the, the world a little bit lighter and brighter for someone that wouldn't have had that experience without us. So when I say there's not a greater coach out there than me, it's, I'm not comparing myself to anyone else. I'm comparing myself to my mission, my calling, and how I define success. Absolutely. So speaking of this platform, and you have a, you have a good, substantial people that really have been inspired by you how um has as your platform has continued to grow what what opportunities do you feel you now have and what challenges have you started to uniquely face because of that platform i'll start with the challenges the challenges is that, you know the more people you have following you the more trolls that are going to be out there you know it, it's it's i know nothing about the track and field world 
other than the fact that I'm a huge supporter of it as a football coach, I think everyone should run track and, you know, track and field. Um, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there's stuff you've posted coach and put out there that someone somewhere just at a different school or college, some university says, Oh, I, I teach that differently. And I think the more people that know of us, the more haters you're going to have. And, and it's, it's never been for me. Oh, my, my haters are my fuel. No, my passion is my fuel. The, the haters are just, they're, they're going to be there no matter what. Um, the, the blessing of the doors that have been opened um, 99% of my speaking engagements have come from social media through Twitter. And it's nothing I ever envisioned for myself or even wanted. Um, I teach elementary school and I paint murals. That, that, that's, there's nothing manly or intense about either of those. My wife was the one that turned me on to Twitter where back in New Hampshire, and then she still to this day comes to all the games. But when we had away games, she would be home watching the news, watching the highlights of other scores and games before we even left the visitors locker room sometimes so i would call her all the time and be like hey who won this game or who who won this so she had said hey get on twitter and follow this guy that reports high school football in new hampshire follow this guy so that's the only reason i originally got on and then for some reason it started to kind of blow up a little bit when i posted certain videos that resonated with certain people um you know it's my wife and i laugh about it um just before COVID hit last year, I got a private message, just like the way you and I connected on Twitter. And someone said, hey, you know, we'd love to have you come out to the Bahamas and speak to uh, ADT security. And I almost didn't respond because it was almost like one of those emails you get that says, hey, give us your bank statement. We want to put money into your account. I'm like- Yeah, I'm a Nigerian prince. I just need $500. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, but needless to say, I did respond to it. And I said, hey, I appreciate the interest. Just email me at my business account. And, and I wasn't flipping like that, but I was like, hey, appreciate it, but didn't put a lot of time or didn't get excited about it. Less than 24 hours later, they called me. I had shared my cell phone number. And I remember, and this is a God thing too. I remember thinking to them and I said, yes, I'd be honored to. You know, they, they were paying me to fly out there, paying for my wife to go out there, paying for everything and a speaking fee. And I said, I just, I've got to ask this question. Why, why me? I'm a, I'm a high school football coach in San Diego, California, division four. Um, and they said, we our, our, our owners, our business owners, most of them are former athletes, but all of them, even if they're not, they're competitors. They're competing in the world they live in, in finance, in their businesses. Um, and then the God thing for me was, um, have you ever heard of Inky Johnson? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, yeah. so I started to question myself and be like, I'm not Inky Johnson. I don't have an Inky Johnson story. I'm not this guy. I'm not that guy. And what I realized was Wayne Dyer, uh, an old school OG author, motivational speaker, if you will, years ago. I, I should research this, find out if he's still alive. I'm guessing he's probably in his 80s, somewhere around there. But he talked about ego one time. And I shared this several times. And I always try to give credit to him. I always, especially in the sports world, thought ego was that cocky, arrogant, individual coach or, or athlete that thought they were better than others. And that, that is one definition. But the way Wayne Dyer described it was ego is, and this is his once again, anytime we edge God out, E-G-O. And that, it was just around the same time I read that, um, a friend had shared it with me from Wayne Dyer. And I was like, man, if, if God put that on my heart, if, if I can connect with someone, whether it's ADT security, whether it's Coach Banta or someone else 
who am I to question what God has put in front of me? You know, I, I don't have to be Inky Johnson to have that story. I don't need to be Eric Thomas. I don't need to be Tony Robbins. And I'm never going to be any of those three guys. And, and nor does the world need another one of those. They, they need Coach Banta to be the best Coach Banta you can be. They need Coach Hines to be the best Coach Hines. So it was one of those things where social media has opened up tremendous opportunities for me. Um, and, and also none that I've ever looked for, but I think my whole life has kind of prepared me for it. And I mean whole life from all my failures to successes to everything in between. Because um, I have been fortunate enough to be able to embrace my failures and realize that as much as they suck in the moment, they're, they're part of my story. They're part of making me who I am. Yeah, we need... And, you know, not to get into the politically charged conversation about cancel culture and all that kind of stuff, but I feel like we need to allow people to have redemption. Yes. Like those are the most powerful stories, right? And so if we want that for others, we need to have that for ourselves as well. There's a lot of things that I think back on that I did or said, and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, like, you know, I'm glad there wasn't a camera around. I'm glad that there wasn't social media, right? You know, but we need to be, because every moment is no longer really private, which is a whole nother discussion too. I think privacy is a, a, a shrinking resource, but, you know, we need to allow people to have that redemption and be okay with it so that they can feel like, well, I am deserving of this moment. I have been put here for, for a purpose, you know, and that, it's time for me to step up into the moment. It's time for me to be brave. It's time for me. And then again, I'm sure first time you probably ever did one of those engagements, it might've not gone exactly the way that you wanted it to go. And since then you've gotten better and better and better. I mean, it's that that's part of the process, right? Yeah. So it's so important for us to allow redemption to happen for sure. Well, and I have to add on to that. Amen. First of all, I, I joke about it. Like you said, man, if social media was around when I was in middle school, let alone high school and college, right. I'd still be in prison and I'm not kidding about that. Um, I, 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 used to, I used to love to drink and fight and I, I used to get arrested all the time. And I, and I have, I don't have, I had at one point three felonies because I've gotten into a fight with three different police officers. And that, that's part of my story. And what I love about it is I'm a firm believer that people can change if they choose to. And when I share that story with my players, when a player, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves is when you hear parents, teachers, coaches say, about our youth. Oh, when they get into the real world, listen, they're in the real world. This is their real world right here, right now, you know, and some of them may not make it to 18 or may not make, you know, so let's not dismiss the fact that their real world is different than ours. You know, ours isn't any harder than theirs. Yeah. There are greater responsibilities, but this is their real world. And the reason I share that is when I meet with a young man or young woman that just got a suspended from school for something or just whatever it is that's very real in their life right now and they think my coach doesn't respect me anymore my parents are disappointed in me my friends are laughing well all this stuff stuff that's weighing in on them i'm able to share that story and i go into detail about my fight and arrests and all that stuff and they look at me just shocked and like yeah but look at you now i'm like that's my whole point look look at look at me now i'm no different i'm no different than you i just you know I, i i also hate without getting on the soapbox when a lot of society says, hey, I'm not taking any more L's. I'm done taking L's. Because that's where our greatest successes come from is from embracing the losses. You know? And you, I, I, wish, I wish when you said, I'm sure I gave some presentations and, and keynote speaking events that weren't great. 
I wish I could have sat here and be like, nope, he doesn't know me. They were all great. Yeah, some some of them, not even not even as I'm walking off stage, some of them on stage, God's honest truth. I'm I'm almost sitting there going, why am I here? Like who who what am I doing? But it was because I kept getting back on that horse saying, you know, hey, you know what? There's a reason this individual reached out to me, this company or whatever wants to have me speak. Um, one I did back in New Hampshire a few years ago was for Fidelity Investments. And it was not because I, I didn't have Twitter yet, any of that stuff. My social media hadn't grown to something. One of the fathers of two of my students, I had two boys, two twins, had heard me speak at a parent-teacher conference. I don't know what I said or what struck a chord <laughs> with him, but he was an executive at Fidelity Investments and said, I need you to speak to our, to our senior executives. So, so I remember saying to him, like, I'd love to. Thinking it would yeah. never happen. A few months later, I was in there in front of 300 people um, that probably all made more in a month than I make in a year. Um, <laughs> but but it, was, it, it was a powerful thing. Not what I shared was powerful. But it was a powerful, another God thing for me of, I have a story. It doesn't have to be someone else's story. You know? And most people in life want to talk to people that have been there and done that. No one on Twitter wants to hear me talk about track and field. And they shouldn't because I have no right talking about it. But you, they should. You know, and people want to talk to people who have lived it, who are living it now. Yeah, for sure. And so when we're talking about all these things we learned, and I tell my kids, and this is, again, a common one that people use all the time. I'm like, but we either win or we learn. We don't win or lose. You know, and we had a real rough moment at the state championship where one of my athletes did not perform well, you know, and, and it, you know, it, it cost us in, in some regard. And she was not going to go up on the stand and get her medal. And she was upset. And I'm like, look, I said, you're going to learn a lot from this experience. I said, right now it's just pain, but you're going to have time to reflect when the pain is not as strong about how you react and respond to this very moment. You are a senior, you are a captain, and you've got to make sure that you don't make a mistake that you will regret for the rest of your life. So you've got to go up there and you're going to have to put on a brave face and you're going to have to learn from the pain of this experience. And I said, many, many years from now, this will drive you and help you accomplish something else that is very challenging and very difficult and very upsetting. And you're going to be prepared for it because you felt this before. This won't Love be it. a surprise, you know, absolutely. So speaking of learning and yes. losing, um, when we think about the pandemic, what has the pandemic taught you about coaching and how do you feel it's forced you to improve and, and become a better coach through this process? Yeah, two, two big things stand out for me. One is a lie that I've been telling to my seniors for years and not even intentionally. And I, I think most of us do it. And that is at the beginning of whoever's senior year, hey, you got 10 more track meets or 20, whatever. You got 10 more games. You got seven more games, five more games, you know, and I think I focus too much on, hey, seniors, after this year, you're, you're graduating, you're done. The pandemic opened my eyes to, to and, I, and I feel like I knew this, but it really struck home with me, how fragile life is. And that we can't assume, hey, you're a freshman, you got four years of high school football left or track and field. Um, to, to really be where your feet are. And that's something I, I've shared with our players um, for years. For, for me, it, it's the same thing as being present. I just like the visual of being where your feet are. When they come into the way room, I am like, listen, outside of these doors, your girlfriend's still mad at you for something you said. Your mom's still mad because you didn't make your bed. Your dad's still mad because you didn't take the trash out. Your right. teacher still expects that paper to be done. 
but for the next two hours, be where your feet are, be present. And for me, that's powerful because I'm guilty as the next guy. How much of our life do we spend stressing about things that never happened? Right. That never come to fruition, or we stress about things that already happened that we can't go back and change them. For example, you know, after I give a bad talk, it's done, it's over. The people heard me. If they got something positive out of it, great. If not, I can't take it back, move on. So be where your feet are. And I think secondly, it's the, uh, and this is huge for me, control the controllables. You know, we still now, we just finished our football season. We were blessed to have, it was a short one, but we won our league. We overcame a lot of adversity as all sports programs did that had or didn't have a season. Um, but now to get back in our weight room, our district is making us get tested every week again, whether you've had the vaccine or not. We can only have 10 players at a time. Going to have masks on the entire time. And I look around at the rest of the country and I'm like, man, this it's different here in California. The politics are a lot different. Yeah. Con- controlling what you control the controllables. I can go into the weight room and complain about it with my assistant coaches and my players. And all I'm doing is spewing negativity. Or I can go there and practice what I preach and say, hey, listen, this is where we are. And I realized that when I was talking to the coaches that are helping, helping me out in the weight room, I love a crowded weight room. I love having to watch where you step because someone else is doing a lift that you weren't paying attention to. And you There's nothing like, better, coach. Yeah, nothing have your, better. Have your head right. on a swivel. Well, now it is. We're in this brand new weight room that we built. My first year there, my first goal was to build a new weight room for culture and all that stuff. We did that. And now we have a weight room with 10 kids at a time in it. Well, right. right away, I told the coaches, I was like, here's a tremendous opportunity. And they <laughs> kind of rolled their eyes. I'm like, guys, you know me. I'm going to find the positive. Here's a tremendous opportunity to get you know, to, get know, to know our kids on a more personal level, level than ever before. Because right. typically, you're spotting someone with a clean over here in the mirror. You see someone doing a deadlift over there with their back rounded. So you're like, hey, hold on a second. You finish here. You run over there. And now there's a lot more, hey, let's just be present with each other. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, and, and I also realized that, you know, gosh, I, I don't want to get too political with it. You know, I know coronavirus is real. I personally think it was politicized, whatever way you want to look at it, good or bad, whatever it was. Um, but it re- made me realize more than ever that we all want the same thing. We all want to belong to something greater than ourselves. And we all want to make, know we're making a difference. So to find that common ground with our coaches and athletes and say, regardless of what's going outside of this weight room or outside of this football field, right now, right here, we have the same goal, same mission, same heart. Let's, let's work together towards a common goal. For sure. Absolutely. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, again, the, the hurdle, the obstacle that seems like it's the impediment ends up in some respects being the path right and and as long as you can keep that in your hearts and i tend to i feel so bad for my assistant coaches because i'm actually kind of a grumpy gus with my assistant coaches because i'm trying to be on for the kids all the time and and have that real positive energy and that's just me but one of the things is it's like well this has forced me to evaluate like why i love coaching you know what were we successful at what were things we weren't allowed to do because of those rules that you mentioned that were genuinely negative for us. So then it's like, Hey, in the future, I can use that as a story. Like, Hey guys, remember we weren't allowed to go into the weight room at all. 
You know, you think that might have made a difference on the ability of us to stay healthy. Hey, did you know they wouldn't right. let us touch each other for partner stretches and you guys didn't think static stretching mattered? Well, then we had three hamstring pulls in a week when I didn't have three hamstring pulls in 12 years. It's like, right. so there's value to that. Hey, you know, we got to think about how do we want to be respectful with our, our space and, and reconnect. And, and even more importantly, like missing the value of, of positive, appropriate human touch, a hug, a high five, a slap on the back. Like there's so much value there that we miss that there's this weird barrier that in some respects, you know, again, not to get political, may or may not be necessary in certain circumstances, but because people didn't really know, like, well, what is this? How is it getting transmitted? But what we do know is that this is how we used to do things. And there's things that we just in our bones miss Yes. that we want to have back, you know, and it's a reset opportunity. Like if there's things that you didn't have good going on in your culture with your team, or there's something like, man, if, if you've gotten through this on the other end of it, hopefully on the other end of it, you know, and you haven't had an opportunity to reevaluate your purpose, your mission, um, and your program and what you're doing, then you've missed out on an opportunity for reflection that could push you in a positive direction for the rest of your career. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, and the human touch part, where I teach, because it's a private Christian school, we, we had an entire school year in person with our kids. Yeah. Every other school around us, unless they were private schools, didn't. So that, that, that kind of infuriated me, even though I love where I teach. I'm like, all right, right. it's the haves and have nots, you know. Right. Um, did, I didn't like that. But also, as, as far as, a, from, from a moving forward standpoint, Sometimes you look at practices and like, all right, we have three pra three hour practices, but they need to be that long. COVID really helped me realize that sometimes less is more. You know, you you don't need to have these. When you play a Friday night football game, I still and I'm I'm going to continue with this. I like to have a two hour practice on Saturday. It's an hour of film, an hour of weights, really to work out the kinks, foam right. roll, stay loose, get the blood, you know, muscles moving again. <clears throat> but we don't have to have these long drawn out meetings um because we were able to prove that we were still successful without them you know and at the same time to see how much human touch as you mentioned is important we have it's funny it happened in bedford new hampshire where i was a head coach and it happens now in coronado and i i never asked for it i don't know how it kind of evolved but at the end of every practice every player goes through and shakes every coach's hand no idea why and i always tell players i always say to them love you love you and you can see some kids look at me and let's say back they say back Love you too, coach. Some kids look at me the first time like, dude, that's weird. But you know, whatever. <laughs> and I, I just keep saying it. And it's, it's great because I have certain players that were freshmen, you know, a year ago. And I'd give them a hug at the end of practice or a handshake and say, love you. And just kind of would look at me and keep walking. And now they're the first one to say it. They're like, love you, coach. You know, you build those relationships. Um, we couldn't do that during COVID, the very beginning of it. We were told we can't. I got in trouble by my AD because I was giving knuckles. I'm right. Like, oh, you're kidding me. You know, so we couldn't, and it, and it pained me so much to have them stand six feet away or whatever and just say, Hey, love you guys, you know, and, and now they're coming back in and, and kind of, I think we're kind of respectfully all over it, you know, and want to get back to that sense of normalcy without losing the reminder of how precious and how get blessed we are to have what we have. Absolutely. And I, I tell my students the very first day I see them when we do our introductions, which we had to do four times this year, which is really weird. We're usually on a semester thing, but we had four quarters and we were in school and then pulled back out of school. And, I, you know, 
it was it was crazy but i say hey i'm gonna tell you i love you and at first you're not gonna believe that some of you some of you are gullible will believe it you know <laughs> uh but i said over time you're gonna know that i absolutely mean that yep. and, and i tell him too i said just because i love you and this is me i don't like your decisions all the time you know right. like that you know that it's not like it's unconditional without consequence you know there are there are consequences it's like i love you a lot but i don't like this yeah, you know i don't cool. you know and and this is not good and we need to have a change of attitude or behavior and that you know it's funny you mentioned that i i got that from um in the handshake thing from a, a coach at uw lacrosse who was wildly successful at the division three level in track and field he would shake every athlete's hand at the end of practice. Now, obviously same thing with COVID is fist bumps, right? Yep. You know, we do the Wakanda forever to each other or whatever, if we can't touch. And, but I want to have that opportunity to, to physically be in contact yes. with every person on my team. And it creates a opportunity from a management perspective. Okay. Hey, they're leaving practice, but B it also says, Hey, you know, like, come here and let me talk to you about something that happened yeah. today that I liked or I didn't like, or, Hey, don't forget about this, you know, and it just gives me that extra opportunity um, to connect. And, you know, from a science perspective, you think about like the four chemicals that make us happy dopamine. Well, you can get dopamine and also you can get dopamine drinking and fighting, <laughs> <laughs> right? You can get dopamine from video games or you can get it all sorts of ways. All right. So that one's like the fast food version. Then you have oxytocin. Well, the only way you get oxytocin is from physical, positive, and appropriate contact, you know? And then you get endorphins. Well, we provide that as coaches, man. They, we pump those kids full of so much positive chemicals. It's great. And then you get serotonin, which we as coaches are also involved in because we create opportunities for delayed gratifications, yeah. you know? And so like the war, and when kids are not physically active, then they're not participating in sports and they don't have coaches in their life and, and mentors in their life. Gosh darn, you know, they're, they're on a, a positive chemical deficit all the time. And we, as yeah. coaches, we provide a lot of avenues for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. Just kids need it. You know, I, I, I've, for whatever reason, where life has taken me, I've always kind of coached in backwoods, New Hampshire, you know, kind of a podunk town or very affluent communities all in New Hampshire and here in California. And I think sometimes people look at the exterior of people's lives and think, well, those kids don't need that love as much. They don't need, we all, we all need it. Whether you come from a broken home or not, whether your parents are both working two or three jobs or your, your mom's home all the time because your dad's making millions. Our young men and our young women need other strong adults in their lives. They're going to look at them. And like you said, when I tell players, I love them, I tell them, I'm not looking to be your best friend. I love you enough to call you out in your BS. I love you enough to sit you when we need you physically in the game to sit you because you were getting mouthy to a different coach of practice. Mm -hmm. Or that's what, for me, that's what real love is to say, listen, I love you enough where I'm not going to let you get away with certain things just because you're going to benefit us. I'm going to love you enough to say, listen, we're not allowing that to, to happen. So we're going to love you. You know, it's called it tough love, call it what you want, but we're going to love you and we're going to love you in the good times and the bad times and hold you accountable for what you do. Yeah, coach, that's awesome, man. And I know the audience is, is just eating this up. I got two more questions for you, if that's okay. You yes, got sir. time for two more yes. questions? All right. So the first one is more of a build me a program question because you've had so many different coaching experiences where it feels like, you know, looking at your resume and stuff like that. It's like, all right, first season, 
rough. Then we build, we build, we build, then championship, final fours, championship, you know, all this kind of stuff. So that's the, the first question I'm going to ask you here in a minute. And then the last one will be more of these like Oprah try to get you to cry questions. So we'll see how we go on that. <laughs> but it. anyway, all right. So if you were to take over and we hope that you don't ever have to do this, that you're at your final stop for you and you're called to be at this particular high school you're at. But if you had to do it over again, what would be the five things that you would initiate immediately to make your team better? Weight room. Weight room would be the first. Uh, and I hesitate, although I didn't think, I think I saw this question, but I didn't have a time to, to really reflect on it because that's where culture is built in so many beautiful ways. Um, and if you're asking for five weight room and people, I, I, I want to make sure that the administration, when, it, when I applied for the job at Coronado, and not, not every school applies or interviews the same ways, obviously. Sometimes you can't ask questions as the person being interviewed. Right. But I was able to ask them, I said, how do you as a school define success for your sports programs? Because some schools will tell you flat out, if you're not winning, we don't want you. you know, and I realize we've got to win to keep our jobs. We've got to have a certain level of X's nose uh, or sorry, scoreboard you know, victories. Um, but you want to make sure your administration's on the same page as you. Um, and as far as support, as far as, you know, like you, we do weekly grade checks. We do, you know, mandatory study hall, their grades are below a 75. Um, then people, as far as coaching staff, you know, you, you, you want to have coaches on your staff that love people first and, and are on the same. I, I used to naively think having a strong why was what I needed as a coach. And then very quickly, I learned that knowing my why is a part of the puzzle. I need to make sure that my coaches and players know my why. Mm -hmm. um, so weight room, making sure administration's on the, on the same page, uh, coaches that are in it for the right reason, um, sharing your why with parents and players is, is huge um, because mom and dad have the best interest of their son or daughter first and foremost, as it should be. But to get them to understand how we define success as a program, what that looks like, and what our goal is for their son or daughter. My goal is not to have every, every player start for us. It's impossible, we can't. It's to help them be better sons and daughters, better members of society. Um, and gosh, the, the, the fifth one is to, uh, as coaches, trust the process just as much as we ask our players to. That, that's what kind of got me through, uh, well, Often you mentioned you did your homework. My first year as a head coach in New Hampshire, I said I said state records, but it's none of the records you want to break. You know, it was for getting our teeth kicked in more than any other school in the history of football. I don't know if that's a true record, but it felt like it. Um, so trusting the process and saying, listen, if this is how I'm not I, but starting out with the head coach, if this is how I'm going to build a winning program, to know that it's going to take time. And years ago, I used to put a, I, I would put a stamp on it. When I got my first job at Bedford, they asked me, if you get this job, how long before you're in the playoffs? And without hesitation, I don't know why, I said three to five years. And both the principal and the AD laughed at me, and I'll never forget it. It wasn't a mean laugh, but they laughed. Um, they said, Coach, you don't have seniors yet because the, the school is brand new. I said, I, I get yeah. that, but th three to five years. Well, fast forward the first year, we lost every single game. Second year, we only won two games. Third year, we won five games, you know. So to trust the process, when I took the job out here in Coronado, my old line coach who became the head coach when I left called me the Saturday morning after our first game. He saw on Twitter that we had lost. 
and was kind of calling to say, hey, you know, don't worry about it. You've been here before. And uh, he's one of my best friends now, but he asked me, he goes, Heinz, how long do you think it's going to take you to, to build a successful program? And just knowing him, I said, Derek, you're going to hate this answer. He goes, no, how long? I said, one person at a time. He goes, ah, you're right. I hate that answer. I'm like, Derek, <laughs> this, I, I said, if, if, if I can pour into one young man to get him to know that I love him and believe in him to the core, and then he invites a friend to come out to the team and he pours into that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a wildfire. There's no containing it. Um, so I think those are five. I, th I think those are the five. Yeah, obviously, when you talk forever, as far as breaking down practice plan and practice scripts and assigning, I do this. I'm cheating because I'm giving you a sixth one. My final one will be making sure that my staff knows well before spring ball what their daily obligations are and off-season responsibilities are. Um, I have some coaches that can't commit to the weight room. That's fine. But the ones that can, I make sure that they know that I'm counting on them. Right. I make sure that, you know, Thursday night after practice, we have our team meal before I leave the high school. My first few years as head coach, I made sure the balls were pumped up, the kicking tees were ready, the water jugs were ready, the cameras, the film, all that stuff. I was trying to do way too much. That's why we have assistant coaches. So I right. delegate well before the season. Hey, on Thursdays, Coach Hose, you're in charge of the headsets. I'm not even going to ask you because I respect you enough. I'm not going to ask you if you have them plugged in and ready to go, but you dang well better have them plugged in and ready to go. Right. So I, I think that does a lot of things. It frees us up as coaches, but it also empowers our staff to, real, to realize that they are an integral part of our success, and without them, we can't do it. Yeah, and I think that's part of an evolution too. It's like trust, right? It's like trust yeah. that they're going to get it done if you give them the assignment to do they need to know though ahead of time so that they can commit to it and they have to get on board with that. This is something you're going to have to do on this particular day or throughout the entire season. And that was a big problem for me too. My first couple of years of coaching, I was like, well, I'm going to take all the best athletes and it's all about, and there's a whole lot of going on there, but all about me. And then it was like, all right, well, instead of just being sprints, let's do all the running events. And then it's like, well, no, let's let it's track and field team. So, okay, now let's do track and field. And then it's like, how do I empower my coaches? How do I build the staff that I want? How do I keep them around? You know, and, and what are the things I've got to do, like you said, to delegate authority to them so that they do have responsibilities and they feel important, you yeah. know, and there's some responsibilities that, Hey, they, they might not want to do or take on. And then we make adjustments, you know, and, and that's okay. And that's all right too. And that doesn't mean you have to get rid of them because they're just not good at that. It's like find something that they are really good at and, and empower them that way, just like you would empower your athletes. So exactly. great stuff. All right. Last question. An athlete, when an athlete or colleague leaves your program, what do you think they've learned? And what do you want them to say about you when you're not around? I would hope they would learn it's more than just a game. And what, what I would want them to say about me is that as passionate as I am about the game, I was 10 times more passionate about the people, you know, about making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, awesome. that, 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 that's, that's without getting too preachy or too wordy, I, I, I pray that every player and every, every family knows that whether they, they agree with our play calling or not, the offense we run or not, the defense, that as much as I love the game, I love the people more. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, that very much came through in our conversation today, Coach. I appreciate you being on and spending so much time and providing so much value to um, everybody that you've spread the message to. And like I said, when I saw your one post 
kind of at the beginning of the pandemic when the seasons were getting shut down and you basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, this is an opportunity. What are you going to do now? You have opportunities to get better, to get stronger, to be better with your family, to, to be better prepared for when the season comes, you have more time, you know, looking at the silver lining to what in many ways was a real struggle for people. And it was like, and this dude is right. You know, <laughs> like this is a good message, you know, and, and absolutely um, that's held true, you know, and, and I've tried to take what you said and try to put it into, into my life and, and to live those words as well. And so I thank you for that yeah, immensely, you. man. That, that um, truly means a lot. I, yeah, definitely dude. Well, I mean, you mean a lot to us and, and a lot of other people out there and all the people you work with uh, directly and indirectly through your platform. So speaking of your platform, how can people get a hold of you, reach out, make contact with you um, if they want to? Yeah, so all social media is Coach Kurt Hines, K-U-R-T-H-I-N-E-S. Uh, well, actually, I say that, except for Facebook. Facebook's just Kurt Hines because too many of my high school buddies would, uh, would make fun of me for saying Coach Kurt Hines. <laughs> um, and then I have a website. It's uh, CoachKurtHines.com. And uh, I, I, I do, I, I kind of pride myself in, in family always comes first, but to go full circle about something I shared with my wife earlier when she would say, you know, you don't have to respond to everyone. I'm like, no, I, I know I don't have to, but why wouldn't you? You know, in, in this world of, of, that we live in, if someone cares enough to ask you a question or reach out, why wouldn't you take the time? So if any of your listeners reach out in any way, I, uh, I will always respond to them. And awesome. my, my, my buddy and I did a podcast uh, he just messaged me last week, said we need to get that going again. Uh, but we, we have a podcast uh, that we've been lackadaisical on, but it's called For What It's Worth Coaching. And uh, very similar, Coach Banta, to what you and I just did. It's just two guys. See, he's a baseball guy, but two guys talking about life and mm -hmm. trying to use our platform to, to bless and empower others. Awesome, Coach. Well, we appreciate that, and we'll make sure that that gets in the show notes. And again, we thank you for being here. And to the audience, thank you for listening. Please share this out. This message is important. Coach gave us a lot of value today. I am inspired and pumped up and excited. And I told my kids, uh, you know, today, I was like, man, I'm going to get to sit down with this dude who's going to get me pumped up, ready to run through a wall over the summer and uh, absolutely lived up to my expectations. So thank you. And to everybody else, man, make sure you subscribe, share this out. And remember, be smart, be safe. We love you. Peace out. Coach, you're awesome. Thanks, man.